Hello, everyone. My name is Allison Winslow. And my name is Bryn Case. And welcome to Bring on the Books. We are so excited to be on this podcast, our first episode. Wild. Which is Allison's dream come true. It is. I'm grinning from ear to ear. Yeah, I am too, but only because you are. So this is basically a podcast set around building community and literature. Yeah. Some people just don't like picking up a book and reading it. Shocker. I know. But our podcast allows people to pick up a new book that they would have never read before and read it with us. Two Mm -hmm. fun gals who are very passionate. Super fun gals. Who are passionate about um, literature and talking about it together. We actually picked up The Seven Moons of Molly Amida by Shihan Kamuntulaka, and we are going to be going through it. We're going to be talking about themes, we're going to be going through content, and we basically are just going to be guiding you guys through the book and other books alike. It is a novel that is set in Sri Lanka in the 1980s, and Sri Lanka at this time was of civil war and it's written in the second person which is really interesting and it follows the central character Molly Almeida who is a war photographer a gambler and a closet gay and he sets out to f- solve the mystery of his own death and is given only one week or seven moons during which he can travel between the afterlife and the real world which actually is pretty crazy to read because you have first person, second person, first person, second person, and he's traveling between life that's still happening where his family is still trying to figure out what happened to him into this afterlife kind of media moment where he really doesn't know if he's dead or alive, what's happening, who killed him. He has to figure out everything by himself. So that's pretty interesting. We chose this book because it's relevant. It won the Booker Prize in 2022. It is actually the author's second novel, and his first novel got a lot of noise too. Mm -hmm. So he's killing it, absolutely killing it in Sri Lanka. And it made it all the way over here. So we're excited to dig into it. We're excited to contribute to all the online traffic that this book is getting. And we're we're ready. Author Shihan Karun Talaka was born in Gale, Sri Lanka in 1975 and grew up in Colombo, which is actually where our novel is set. He studied in New Zealand and has lived and worked in London, Amsterdam, and Singapore. He currently lives in Sri Lanka, and as Bryn said, this is his second novel. I was surprised about that. I had never heard of him before. I never heard of him either, but but it makes sense. It does. We're in like America in very like white culture, Western. Yeah. So I want to kind of put us into context of the Sri Lanka Civil War because I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about it either. Yeah, like literally nothing. Yeah. So here are some 
pieces of information that I think are helpful to put us in the space of this book. The Sri Lanka Civil War lasted from 1983 to 2009, so it's actually like a 30-ish year. That's a long time. Conflict, yeah. And pretty recent, too. Yeah, really recent. I mean, in our lifetime, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, beginning on the 22nd of July, 1983, there was an insurgency against the government the LTTE, which is actually the Tamil Tigers, which is mentioned in the Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. So very interesting. We are mm-hmm. literally placed directly in the context of the Civil War. The LTTE fought to create an independent Tamil state, which would be on the northeast side of the island due to discrimination and violent persecution against Sri Lankan Tamils by the Sinhalese-dominated Sri Lankan government. So this was basically a group of people that said, we've been discriminated against and we need to act out violently. Yeah, they wanted to create a whole new government system for themselves in a separate part of the island, and um, they were fighting very violently for that. Oh, yeah. Very violently. Suicide bombing played a big role in this. But more specifically, this book is actually set in the 1990s in mm-hmm. Colombo, which is a, a big city in Sri Lanka. And it's actually just a five-hour drive from the northern province, which is really interesting because on Jul- June 11th of 1990, members of the Sinhalese officers were responsible for killing over 600 unarmed Tamil citizens along with members of the LTTE in the northern province of Sri Lanka. And then, just nine days later, the town of Kalmunai was allegedly subjected to intense shelling by the army. So in the 10-year span of from 1990 to 2000, there was extreme violence, and it was only yeah. five hours from the city where this is this book is set in. Yeah, yeah. Which is significantly important to recognize. Like, people yeah. were getting bombed five hours away. Yeah, and they talk a lot about that throughout the book so far, of the intense violence um, and persecution that people have been facing for years. Like, it wasn't just a few years. It's been, like, 20-plus years that people have been living in this condition, and that's definitely relevant to... The chapters that we wrote so far. Yeah, and I mean, they also talk about, you know, misconceptions. Um, on page 28, they Molly is actually saying, hey, listen, I photographed the killings and I'm telling you there are 5,000 dead bodies. And he is brutally awoken to the fact that there were 20,000 in the last year, 20,000 yeah. dead bodies. So I think we're not only dealing with a super violent moment in history, but we're also seeing someone inside that violence who's actually inside of dual violence because they're also gay. Yeah. And he also clearly, even as a reporter, doesn't understand how many people are dying. Should we get into it and kind of talk about what's happened in the chapters so far? I think we should. Full disclosure, we are going through book one. So chapter one of this book today, pages three to 86. But I think it'd be a good place to start out with you just giving us an overview of what's happened in the chapter, like a content summary. Definitely. We open the chapter 
and it's written in second person remember so the whole time it's you did this this is happening to you so that's really interesting and we're introduced to the main character his name is molly almeida and he's described as a photographer a gambler and a slut we learn that he was born in 1955 and died in 1990 so we now know he is dead what's going on there and the chapters are interesting because they're like sectioned off and I feel like it goes from present day to flashback to present day to flashback no that's what I felt like too and it was kind of hard for me at moments to distinguish where I was if I was in real life or going back Yeah. yeah so it definitely took a couple minutes of reading to figure out okay where are we on the timeline so our next section we see molly in the afterlife he is in line and he has so many questions about his death like i said we learned that he's a photographer and he's in a committed ish relationship ish being the key part ish being the very key part because he's a cheater he he is a cheater yeah and like kind of proud of it Question yeah, mark? I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it gets more interesting as we go on and we learn more about his personal life. Yes. So as he's waiting in line, he learns all this information about where he is and, like, what's going on. He learns that they have seven moons or, like, seven days, but we don't know for what. We learn that the Civil War, as we've talked about, is constantly moving and that the fighting is just getting worse and worse. We hear how Molly, like views himself and his photographs on page eight he says i take photos i bear witness to crimes that no one else sees i am needed and i think that's really interesting way of framing his work and him photographing these really violent attacks and events which is probably what got him killed in my opinion yeah in my opinion i mean we hear about all these Photos that you're talking about, like, under his bed. Yeah. And, like, They're some so secret. Anyways, continue. Yeah. But I feel like it has to play a role. It, it, do- it definitely, definitely does. So, continue on. And he meets this helper woman who he actually knew when he was alive. And she tells him that he only has seven moons to reach the light. And we don't really know what this light is. And she's not his helper, right? No. She is just a helper in this medium world. Yes. It's at the end of the chapter that he meets his helper. Yes. So this lady is really, it's kind of like a DMV worker, just, you know, dealing with the masses. She's just trying to get the line moving. And so he has all these questions, and he's not getting any of his answers. And in the midst of this chaos, he is drawn to a darkly dressed young man who tells him that they should get out of there and that Molly should stay away from the light. And this is interesting because the helpers of the place do not want Molly to go with this guy or for this guy to be in the room. And Molly ends up going with the guy, and he enters the city of Colombo. He can see both alive people and dead people. So he's in this, like, realm where both alive and dead people, spirits are, like, mingling, but the alive people can't see the dead people, and he's kind of in this space. And he's following a figure that's, like, highly suspicious, and he was advised not to follow, which seems like a testament to his character when he was alive. Yeah, 
Things to think about. Things to think about. So he goes in there and we learn that he has pictures of important political and popular culture figures hidden away under his bed. These are the pictures that we've talked about earlier. We don't know what the pictures are. We don't know what they're what they entail, but we just know he has important people's pictures, which seems very suspicious. Possibly pictures of violence. I mean there there could be a lot there could be a lot under his bed. Yeah. That people are maybe still looking for. Yeah. That'll be interesting. So as Molly like goes through Colombo, he meets a bunch of different people from his past and he starts speaking to a ghost in this city is who's a man he photographed and this man tells him to stop following the young man who's dressed in black and to go find his light. The man tells him that he didn't do this and that he really regrets it and wishes that he could, but Molly doesn't really listen to him. So Molly continues and he ends up watching these two men who we learn are Koto and Balal. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. Um, They are trash collectors and they are dumping parts of his body into the river. But they're trash collectors with a sketchy past. It's very obvious that they're trash collectors that have also been up to no good and yeah. so that's how they're in this position yeah they one has been to like prison and one of them's like a butcher yeah. who like carries around a cleaver yeah. everywhere and that plays a role in dismembering the bodies it's interesting it, those scenes are very vibrant i would say good word thank good you words. thank you so as he's watching he kind of recounts some of the complex political situations and like the climate that they are in as we've kind of heard from Bryn. And we get a really nice cheat sheet on page 24 of all the different players, which thank you for that because it's a lot of abbreviations. Um, So we learn about the LTTE that Bryn has already talked about, um, which stands for the Liberation Tigers of Tamal Elam. And they want the separate Tamal state. Um, And then we also hear of the JVP, and these people want to overthrow the government. So they are not with the LTT at all. They just want a different government. We have multiple organizations working kind of against each other, kind yeah. of for the same things, kind of different. It's interesting. Yeah. I feel like those are the two main players, though. The LTTE and the JVP. I agree. And then I think also the STF, the special task force, comes into play when people are eventually murdered and abducted and suspected of things and so then they're tortured yeah after this nice abbreviation he follows his body with the black clothed figure who we find out is a man named Sina who Molly once knew from a political rally that he was at and they kind of messed around like Molly I think hit on him and I think they ended up kissing and we learn that Sina is a part of a group of spirits who is trying to get justice for those who have been killed. And he wants Molly to join. Because the whole thing, right, is that a bunch of these people that have been killed were not justly killed. They no. were suspected of things that they maybe or maybe did not have anything to do with. Yeah. And then they were just brutally tortured and killed as kind of a side effect yeah like kind of collateral damage 
some were just civilians going on their way and they were just caught in the crossfire and they had no affiliation with either group. Which Molly claims to have no affiliation with either group. He specifically yeah. says he's not part of the LTTE. Yeah. Which is interesting because he's dead at this point. What does he have to lose by lying about that? There's no reason. There's no reason to lie. Yeah. We're suspicious of Molly, too. We don't know. I agree. There's a lot of unanswered questions that Molly has and that we as readers have. So in the next section, it's like a flashback to Molly and his boyfriend, question mark. We're going to keep that a permanent question mark. We're going to keep that a permanent question mark. His name is Dee Dee, and they're discussing past sexual partners and penis sizes, as one does. Interesting. Very interesting. And we learned that Molly would take pictures of men's genitals and sell them to different groups. He would sell them to, like, the LTTE, to the JVP, um, so they could use them as blackmail. Which is actually pretty interesting to me because I feel like that could cause them to ask the question, how are you getting pictures of so many people's genitalia Mm -hmm. if you're not gay? Yeah, yeah. You know, which is not acceptable then. Yeah. And in that setting. No, definitely not. And it also begs the question, what other pictures does he have? I would be surprised if this didn't come up later in the book. Oh, for sure. He has to know that all of his readers are like, what are these pictures? We uh, demand to know. They're in almost every single chapter. There's mentions of these pictures. I also feel like this shows that Molly isn't afraid to photograph literally anything. And it kind of speaks to his character as some of these people didn't know that they were being photographed. And just how dangerous the photos under his bed could be. And it's also interesting, I feel like, because he has a camera around his neck in this afterlife, and we see him multiple times trying to take pictures of people as it's like a gut instinct. He sees something, and he's like, oh, I need to take a picture. But this camera that he has doesn't even have film in it. It doesn't work. Yeah. Which is also, I feel like, kind of a play on you're not alive anymore. You're out of pictures to take. Ooh, yeah. That's good. And it also shows that he he feels he has to mediate the world in some way. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Like, this... he can't just live. He has to, like, have something to do and a way of, like, framing the world around him that a camera offers him. Yeah, he's constantly carrying around a frame. Yeah. And I wonder if he ever looks back at these pictures. Like, what's the point in taking so many pictures if you're never going to... We're never going to revisit them. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. We'll, maybe we'll find out. I hope so. So then we go back to Molly still with Koto, Balal, and their driver, driver Molly, um, as they try and figure out where to dump the bodies that they couldn't get into the river for some reason. The Bira, right? The yes. Bira River, which apparently is like known to be this river that bodies are dumped into and people just don't ask questions. I think they described it as, like, brown and, like, just reeking. Yeah. Which does not sound like a lake I would want to take a swim in. No, I wouldn't. I would not either. And they didn't even weigh the bodies down. They, like, kind of gave up halfway. Yeah, they, like, dumped part of the bodies, but then put the rest in, like, garbage bags and are bringing them with them. And 
There's a lot going on. It's clear they don't really know what they're doing. Yeah, so they joke about feeding the bodies to cats, and they make racist jokes about Chinese people, and in the end, they decide to go back to the hotel and just get some sleep. Molly continues to try to remember more of his life, and he gets flashes of what's happened, but he really doesn't remember how he died or who he was with when he died, and we see this coming up and being a point of hurt for him and, like, confusion. I feel like it would be... He's in a place where he doesn't really know anything. He asks people what the light is, and he doesn't even know... He knows what he's supposed to do, but he doesn't know how to get there at all. Yeah. So he's just really in a situation where a bunch of people in this kind of afterlife for him are telling him, don't do this. Don't follow that person. You need to do this. You need to go this. Who do you trust? Who do you listen to? Yeah. And he's trying to observe the people that are still alive that are trying to figure out how he died. Yeah. Jumble of things. Jumble of things. Yes, thank you. You're so welcome. So, Cena has been with him this whole time, and he decides to leave the bodies, and Molly follows him. And Cena is persistent that Molly was part of some political group, as we talked about, and Molly is adamant that he was not. While they're having this discussion, a Naraka or a hell being comes and Cena says that they need to they need to get out of there. So they run to the cemetery and Cena explains that this monster is a deity who can swallow up souls, but it can't go where it's not invited. And it kind of reminded me of the vampires from Vampire Diaries. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, like in the Vampire Diaries the vampires aren't allowed to enter houses that they're not, if they're not invited. If they're not invited. And that kind of feels like the Naraka of, like, if they aren't invited somewhere, then they can't go. That's true. And also, I feel like it's going to come into play that similar to Vampire Diaries, they were always wrongly, not wrongly inviting these people in, but inviting these people into their lives and giving them access when they shouldn't have had access. Yeah. Which I feel like is going to happen with this deity as well. Yeah. And it even comes up later, this one woman will... We can get to it later, but she says, I should call the Naraka on you to Molly and as a threat to have the Naraka come and eat his soul. Oh, so maybe it's like the assassinator of the, <laughs> this median world. <laughs> yeah, maybe they use him, at, they like hire him out as an assassin. So then Cena goes into like this building and with these engineering students who they run into before the Naraka comes and he writes six names. Driver Molly, Bilal, Kotu, who we've met before, and then three new ones, The Mask, Major Raja, and Minister Creel. And he says he wants to make them suffer and that these are the people responsible for their deaths. All of their deaths, including Molly. Including Molly. And so far we know three of the names. So who are the other people? And when are we going to meet them? Because at this point, we're almost 100 pages in, and we haven't met the other three people. Yeah. So after this, Molly hesitantly agrees to help Cena if Cena will help Molly find out how he died and take him to see his family and friends. So Cena takes Molly to Amara Tree, which is a conduit 
of wind for them to travel on and Sina explains that if you sit and listen in the tree you can hear your voice being spoken and then you can be taken to whoever spoke your name so Molly does this and he hears his name being spoken and he's like kind of rushed away from the tree to a police station where he runs into Dee Dee, his mom, and his girlfriend, Jackie. Which is weird. Also, what in the hell are Jackie silly pills? Because that is brought up, like, at least twice. I would be bold enough to say three. And... (laughs) I want to know what they are. I'm guessing it's probably, you know, she's she's taking you know, prescription meds or LSD. Xanax. She's taking, yeah, something. Maybe and not Xanax. Yeah, maybe Xanax, though. Who knows? You, like, we don't know what the drugs look like in Sri Lanka. So, <laughs> I guess, and maybe we're never going to know what it is. Maybe the point is just that they are taking something. Maybe the point isn't what that something mm, is. Yeah, we definitely get a sense that Jackie is, I don't want to say fragile, but she's like the one most distraught, it seems like, with Molly being gone. I would agree with that. Yeah. Like his mom is kind of, she's upset and worried, but she is more, okay, let's figure out where he is. Let's find him. Let's take the next steps. She's a problem solver. She is a problem solver. And Dee Dee, he's a little all over the place also, But he's also still like, okay, what can I do to figure out where he is? What can I do? They all want to figure it out is the bottom line. Yeah, They're just, their reactions, their gut reactions are either emotional, pragmatic, or angry. Yeah. Um, So as they're filing for this report, the police are questioning them about Molly and what he did. And Jackie explains that Molly takes photos for the army the associated press and other news agencies he had just returned from jaffna and he wanted to meet with didi and to get lunch with his mom which he never suggests like his mom was very shocked to hear that he wanted to meet with her which makes the mother believe right that he knew something was off and that something happened to him for him to have died yeah Yeah, it makes her really suspicious because she was like, he never does this. Why would he do it now? And then the next day they can't find him. And doesn't she kind of try to bribe with money in, like, the police station? Yeah, I'll bring that up later because I think it's so – no, you're good because I think it's fascinating. It is. I was not expecting that at all. And the cops' reactions is really fascinating. Yeah, okay, continue. There's just a little bit more of information. So – We find out he was in the army. Molly was in the army, and Major Raja was his commanding officer. And Major Raja was one of of the names on the boards that Sina wrote down as responsible for their deaths. I don't even know what to think about that. Like, my gut reaction is just, how is this man in the army? But then I feel like... Maybe the army was a gateway for him to get into whatever this photography profession mm-hmm. is that got him killed. Like, yeah. maybe he got kind of plucked out of that and it was like, oh, you have this other set of skills. Why don't you use it? Yeah. And it's so interesting that his commanding officer is one of the names on the board that Cena wrote down. Maybe he partnered with 
the LTTE. Maybe he was used as a torture mechanism. I don't know. And he has a lot of power. A lot of power. Going okay, no, going back to what we were talking about, his mom tries to bribe the cops into helping them. And at first they deny the money, saying that not all cops are bad. It's kind of a back and forth. And in the end, they end up taking money from her. But they're very adamant about them not being corrupt cops. Yes. I'm wondering if, will them considering themselves quote-unquote good cops play a role in this investigation? I feel like it has to. I feel like that scene definitely existed for not only the purpose of telling us that his mom has money to spend towards this like I feel like there had to be more and then after they're bribed they yeah. they're like oh yeah we took the money but I guess now we have to do something because yeah. we took the money like they really weren't gonna do anything about this yeah and even later when it gets a little bit more complicated one of the cops is like we didn't get paid enough from her like, we got to get more money from her if we're going to end up doing this. I mean, to a certain extent, I don't agree with their cynicism, but I do think I can see I can see the side of getting so many missing people reports in and you're like, okay, 98% of these end up in people that have been killed and wrongly tortured, and that's just how life is right now. I can kind of see why they would be reluctant to investigate the potential that he's still alive. Yeah, no, definitely. In the atmosphere they're in? Well, even when they're trying to file the report, we, like, hear that there are, like, 20, 30 mothers crying in the lobby about their missing children, and they're getting upset that the cops are spending so much time with Dee Dee and his mom and Jackie. And if you have 20, 30 other women who all have the same situation and the end of the day you're like how much can I really do yeah that's not to say I don't think they're jerks but yeah but I I don't think their position is completely amazing yeah so I think that's important to acknowledge very important so we learned that Molly met his clients at a place called Hotel Leo, and the cops end up deciding to check it out. So he follows the cops, and we learn their names are Ranchego and Kazim, and he follows them instead of his friends and family. And then I have, I actually have a question from this chapter. What photos do you think are under his bed that are so important? And what was he meeting clients about at Hotel Leo, and why did he want to talk to Didi and his mother? Because he had just gotten back from Jaffna, which we heard was, like, rife with civil war and violence violence and danger. What did he learn or take pictures of there? I think it was of the violence. I'm going to be honest. I think he took perhaps brutal images of war or images of... I think the reality of war is a lot uglier than people can imagine who aren't in it. I just, I would be shocked to find out he was in that location where we know it was so violent. We know there was so much bloodshed and he didn't take any pictures of that bloodshed. Mm. I feel Mm. like there has to be that. But we know that he's already taken pictures of 
yeah really violent stuff and sold it to news agencies so i don't know how more violence could because he says that it like could end the war or change the trajectory of the war it's uh, maybe we're not i think we're probably not supposed to know what it is yeah but whatever it is it's major tea the kettle is steaming hot on that question piping hot also his filing system is so interesting of the king the queen yeah the jack and the ten yeah that is interesting he has boxes of photos under his bed and each box is labeled a different type of face card and we don't know what's in each box or what each one symbolizes yet. I think we know some of them. I think we know, I think one of them was genitalia. I think that was Jack's. Yeah. Yak box had the genitalia in it. I remember the lady at the end of the chapter was like, he told me that a box labeled queen mm. was waiting under his bed for me. Okay, so maybe we don't know. And then he also said that he had like, a box full of perfect tens or something like that. Yeah, and you're right. A box with tens. So we don't know what kings are. But it says... So we know some of them, just not all of them. Yes. But I think the filing system is also really interesting, and we need to keep that in mind because it seems to connected with specific people. Because when he talks about Major Raja, he talks about the king of clubs box. There's some kind of elaborate system anyway, going on here. And an we're going to crack it. We will crack it. And when we do, it will be cause for celebration. Then after this whole situation with in the police station, we get the story of how Jackie and Molly met. They met at a casino at Hotel Leo. And they end up moving in together and being kind of boyfriend-girlfriend, but like not really... We learned that Dee Dee and Jackie are cousins. Didn't see that coming. And we also get some insight on how he views life of like as it's like a gambling game. A lot of intense gambling imagery. Which seems to speak to a bigger context. I don't know because he he is painted to be kind of careless gambling. Mm-hmm. So he seems irresponsible, but then he seems so responsible with yeah. these these filing methods and this elaborate measures he's taking to photograph these people and the articulate nature of it it's juxtaposing it's wild it is wild there's a quote on page 58 that i found really interesting about this he says you've never placed a bet you couldn't win which is not the same as not losing you went in eyes open knowing all the angles and most of the odds the odds of winning the lottery are one in eight million the odds of dying in a car are one in four thousand and according to Mr. Kinsey, the odds of being born homo are 1 in 10. And I just think that's interesting that he talks about how he, he's never placed a bet he couldn't win. Yet he's losing. And if he's gambling, that's just a flat-out lie. Yeah. That's a... No. Yeah. Like, I've never gambled in my life, and I know that's a lie. And he, tell, and he even tells Jackie when he first meets, it's all an odds game, and odds are you're going to lose. Frames how he views life and, like the choices he makes and it makes him both like you were saying more responsible but also more risky with everything he does and I feel like it also says something about the 
type of brain he has. I mean, he's working in probability, so he's mathematically minded, yet also involved in politics and the arts. An interesting character is definitely being detailed here that is incredibly dynamic, which I think is responsible for some of like the praise of this book. I mean, this our main character is incredibly dynamic. Yeah, definitely. And we get more of sense of his thought process with his art and photography in the next section when he speaks with the woman who he had photographed being burned alive. They have an interesting conversation about photographers' moral and ethical involvement in what they photograph. On page 62, he says... You could do nothing but shoot, and that made you feel like you weren't doing nothing. You clicked her, being dragged by the hair and doused in petrol. And right when the match was lit, the Nikon jammed. I know you were there, she says. I remember every face. The minister was there watching from his car. You were there taking my picture, like it was some fucking wedding. I wasn't part of the mob, I swear. I just had the camera. If you were part of the mob, I would feed you to the Mahakali. If I was in the wrong place holding a camera, is that your slogan? Her eyes are red and brown. Her voice is black. I'm sorry for what happened. I wish we could have stopped it. Thank you. That means less than nothing. And I just think that's so impactful how he views his photography. He's just in the wrong place at the right time. If I'm being doused in petrol and I'm standing there and I look over and someone's clicking a picture... I'm pulling out a gun. You know yeah, what? Like, I would, that's would, awful. It's awful. You you look over and you say, do something. Because what you're doing, I mean, essentially, that is his work. He is profiting economically off of that picture of that person's pain. And in some ways, like, it's not his pain to depict. It's her own. I was talking in one of my classes about how people think that they have a right to other people's images, that people think they have the right to photograph anyone and use that photograph however they want, Mm -hmm. when really you don't. Like, that's someone's image, yeah, and it should be theirs. And I feel like he doesn't really see it that way. And also, he kind of uses photography as, like, an excuse to get out of being more active in any one group. I feel like there's definitely moments where photography is the scapegoat for his lack of, or taking a stance on the issue Yeah, at all. So interesting. The cops and Molly end up going to Hotel Leo and they check the garbage bags that are left there because that's where the bodies are. What I found really interesting was during this chapter, they called World War Two, the second big Euro war. And I thought that was really fascinating because it shows how Europe is in the center of the world and also how removed Sri Lanka is, that they view World War Two as just another European war. And for us, it's like a world war. But they didn't. And Sri Lanka is part of that world and it's not they're not identifying with it. Yeah. That is, I didn't even catch that. I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah. I just thought that was really interesting of, like, giving contextualization to how Sri Lankans feel as a part of the world. 
and how they might not feel like they are a part of it. We follow the cops as they enter a room with Koto and Bilal. And Koto and Bilal lead the cops to a refrigerated room with trash bags. And they point them to Molly's body in one of the bags. Koto and Bilal take them to where Molly's body was found out by the dumpster. And they share that they threw his head into the lake. And Ranchego and Kasim tell them to get the head for the mom. We learn that Ranchego and Kasim both are, like we've talked about, disillusioned about their job and how they just want to not be there. It seems like no one wants to be in this middle place that isn't between life and death, but seems to be between afterlife and oblivion. And they all just want to get out of Colombo. They want to get out of the killing so Rancho and Kasim go to talk to Chang, the boss of the casino, and they learn that Molly was in the casino the night before and that he was seen talking to a white foreign man and then he went upstairs. So they go upstairs to the balcony that Molly was thrown or they think maybe jumped from and they ask the boss, the pitmaster, and the bartender some questions. They learn that the bartender was the last person to see him and that they went upstairs to go fool around. Then they notice a padlocked door that the casino staff won't address what's behind. And there's like this big conflict over they can't go in there, they're not allowed over there, no one goes in there, don't worry about it. But people do go in there is what we find out. It reminds me of like your your local bar you always go to and there's this like patio on the third floor and it's oh that's marked off but you've lived there your whole life and you know that if you go up on that balcony and bring someone up there and you're macking on them no one's gonna come up and say anything because no one's gonna know you're up there yeah it kind of reminds me it seems like a stealthy hookup moment yeah for me yeah for sure So then the cops go up to the seventh floor and they meet with a woman who Molly recognizes but can't name. And she has a lot of his pictures framed up in the hallway. And she calls him by like a nickname and it kind of seems like she knew him pretty well. It also seems like at this point we're completely certain that he has definitely lost bits of his memory. I mean, these are fundamental people in his life that he just cannot grasp. We learn that the woman's name is Elsa Mathongi, and she works for the Canada-Norway Third World Release Center, or CNTR, which is pronounced center, with her cousin brother, and that relief group raises money for victims of the war. Elsa's cousin brother, Kagaraja, comes out and informs the police that Molly resigned the day before, As Karanga is talking, Molly gets a sensation and says that Karanga is not his real name. And when the cops leave, we see that Karanga and Elsa share a suspicious look. And it kind of, I got the sense that they aren't telling the whole truth about what Molly did the day before what he told them how that whole situation went down so as they're leaving molly sees cena and a quote fairy godmother in a sari 
arguing about him outside the window. There's a lot of terms in here that seem particular to the culture. Some of these are sorry, Tamil, tiger, hamu. You kind of have to define some terms in this book, but I think I think they're relevant. So just to add a little a little more to this context, a sari is a garment that's draped around the body and usually worn by women, and it's particular to the Sri Lankan culture. Oh, okay, yeah, interesting. So we follow the cops, and they decide to write two reports. They said that if they can't find the body, they will do a report saying that he's gambling somewhere, they don't really know where he is, but, like, he's not dead, kind of, like... So they're going to lie. So they're going to lie. But if they do find the body, then they're going to do the second report, which is that he was murdered. All signs point to that he was murdered. As they're talking about this, Elsa follows them down to their car and tells them that Molly would talk about a box of photos under his bed and that they could help each other find the pictures and then split up the photos. Because I think from her understanding, these photos are really valuable. Yeah, that they can basically split the profit. She also talks about that he had photos from a Batikola police massacre, which I thought was really interesting. And the cops seem really surprised by this. And I don't really know what that is. I feel like maybe, and this could be totally left of center of what we're supposed to think, but I think maybe this is continuing to paint the picture that somehow this man is getting into these spaces that no observer should be allowed in. It seems like he's in these places where they're only spaces for the participants and somehow he squeezes in and manages to get these pictures and personally I think he might perhaps be using his sexuality to his advantage in that way like maybe he's soliciting political figures that are men that want sexual service from other men and he won't say anything and he'll also get something out of it that's more than just sexual pleasure oh i never thought of that of like using his sexuality as like a weapon so in the end elsa and the cops agree to help each other and they plan to meet at the police station at 8 a.m the next day once they leave molly tries to follow the cops but he's held back by something and he finds cena and renee the woman in the sari who he saw cena and her like fighting Renee tells him that she has been assigned to help him. And I thought I would read the last couple sentences of this because it's very interesting. Yeah, so this is the helper we've been waiting for. The capital H helper that's supposed to guide him. Yes. Take it away. You may call me Renee. Helping you is what I am assigned to do, she says. You have seven moons and you have already wasted one. So So he wasted a day is what I'm hearing. He wasted a day. And what does he have seven moons to do? I think it's, I think what he has seven moons to do is decide if he's gonna follow the light and like listen Mm. to the helper or if he's going to mosey around, follow that one dark figure who wanted to be followed, if he's gonna invite in that beast that somehow Mm. finds his way. I think this is his moment to figure out how he's going to navigate 
correctly in the space he's in. Yeah. I took it as she's coming alongside of him to help him figure out his murder. You wasted a day. Now we got to get on it. Oh, that's good, too. I didn't think about how she could be helping him yeah. figure out his and life. I, and I wonder if after he figures out his life, if he'll be permitted to go into the light. I wonder how that works. Like, how does the gate open for you to enter the light? Which actually, this is a perfect, perfect transition moment because I actually wanted to speak on the major religious undertones that are going on I'm not even gonna call them undertones that are going on in this book a lot of religious imagery and talk it's the way it's used too it's interesting before the book even begins there is a quote on the inside kind of cover page that says there are only two gods worth worshiping chance and electricity Mm. which I thought was an electric way of starting a book before even starting it. And then on the very next page, there's a quote that says, Father, forgive them, for I will never. So before we've even begun the book, we have anger and it seems like hatred towards religion, towards it's kind of crazy. And then if you keep going on page six, he mentions Moses and he mentions the big book, which he doesn't capitalize. He never capitalizes Jesus or God or felt like that, that word choice, like that addiction just kind of stood out to me. Why not just say the Bible? It was like, it was like, it was just kind of a, a method of belittling that piece of literature. I feel like even if you're not a believer in the Bible, you can still acknowledge it as a major collection of literature with some kind of respect. Yeah, and especially since there's so many people in the world who do like see it as their end-all be-all of life, like just having some sort of modicum of respect for those people and for the book that people base their life on. And then he he continues to foster this climate of kind of an unknown what's heaven, what's going on. And we're brought back to the light, which he does capitalize, both the and light. And on page 11, there's a quote that actually reads, You ask about the light and get a different answer each time. Some say heaven, some say rebirth, some say oblivion. So again, he's toying with what is religion, what comes after death. And it seems like although he's chosen to be an atheist, he really doesn't know if he he made the right choice. I mean, on page 20, he literally says, you thought you were smarter than the sheep who flocked to temples and mosques and churches. And now it appears that the sheep made the smarter bet. Yeah. So does he regret his atheist life choices? Like what's going on? It seems like it. Like when I was reading that, I think he got the sense that if he believed in something, he would be in a better place than what he's at right now. Which honestly is a fair point. Yeah. Because it does look like hell. And I think also another theme is just this awful self-deprecation slut-shaming that he does to himself. Mm -hmm. And on page 26, 
when your dada told you that all poof should be tied up and raped with knives, you looked down at your slippers and never looked him in the face again, which I think could be the origin of his self-deprecation and slut-shaming. I mean, he literally describes himself on page 10 as a photographer, gambler, and slut. But I think this could also play in... I think there's a connection between his father and religion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's proven even more so on page 21, where he says, if there's a heavenly father, not capitalized, father is lowercase, he must be like your father, absent, lazy, and possibly evil. For atheists, there are only moral choices. And I think also throughout, he connects his father with all his failures in life. He's always talking about his past past career options, and he's like, oh, my father paid for all of this, so I failed at it. And always talk in the negative with his father, like never a positive thing. And that has to play some role in how he views a god. I actually have a question for you oh, about that, which we can, if you want to go into it. Yeah, let's move into our questions. I was wondering what you think the author is trying to communicate about religion by having these views. And more specifically, if you think he's speaking to the character of Molly and Molly's religious understanding, or if you think it's kind of a projection of the author's own experience with religion, mm. because he grew up in Sri Lanka. Yeah. I mean, he he was in this atmosphere of hatred, yeah. of war. I feel like whenever anyone grows up in such a war-torn, violent place, they have to be disillusioned. And they have to have so much skepticism, especially when they see such violence day to day. Like, how can a god be real if all this bad stuff is happening? And I feel like Molly might be a way for the author to kind of be grappling with that. And also, like, what does the afterlife look like for these people who were killed so needlessly i mean we're talking about people here that are not only dismembered after death and weakly tried to be weighed down in a gross river but also these people have like no fingernails the bottoms of their feet are like bloody and bru like they these people have been tortured yeah i mean i agree with you i think also to add to your point his vocation is extremely lonely. I mean, he mm -hmm. works in secrecy, so yeah. he definitely doesn't see God there. He definitely doesn't see God in war. He doesn't see God in how people treat him as a homosexual. He hasn't seen God through his father. Yeah. And we only know so much of the rest of his family. So mm -hmm. where... Where can he find God? Or anything beautiful. Yeah. Photos that aren't just for, for pure enjoyment. It's like always for a purpose gross a gross purpose if i just can't stop thinking about being in love with an art so like to some extent he has to be in love with the art of photography but then he only uses it for bad yeah and that and that love for it looks so gross in the yeah, pictures yeah you know what i'm saying and i guess i'm not saying that like doing things for news is bad but like we never see him just doing it out of pure enjoyment it's always financial maybe political gain we don't know yet he always has some sort of agenda with it it's never this is my passion i'm gonna enjoy it yeah 
Precisely. I'm going to throw the baton to you. Do you have yeah. anything to ask me? I was just about to say, Brynn, I have a question for you. I have, I have a question for okay. you. So this novel is written in second person. And for me, that was very disorienting. I don't know if I've ever read a novel in second person before. Why do you think the author chose to write this novel in second person? And what are the effects writing it in second person on how you have read the novel so far? I hate to take a line out of your book, but I agree with you. I was completely disoriented. I actually, in my annotated book, I literally started circling where the tenses changed. And I was like, okay, I need a track. Like, where are we in the real time? Are we in, you know? So um, I agree with you. I think it was a little disorienting, but I think there's a lot of positives to this. And I think it's pretty genius. I think this was a good move. I think that by putting us in second person, he's using, he's saying you, you're supposed to feel it too. Yeah. Like we are really in, we're incapable of separating our emotions from Molly's in a way. And I think that that's not only powerful, but kind of necessary for a book like this. This is actually the first... I know you're a real crime novel (laughs) woman, (laughs) but this is my first. So Mm. I think reading it, it's hard for me to imagine reading a crime novel that would be anything other than second person. Because I feel like the same way as you watch a, a crime movie and the atmosphere, the sound, all of that is putting you in it. You feel like you're in it. I feel like he needed to have this flip-flop of point of view in order to properly place us in it. Writing it in second person, I definitely agree, like, puts you in the character's shoes more than he did this or, like, I did this. And because not very many novels are written in second person, it, like, kind of makes it stand out and kind of, like, is jarring, especially at the beginning of the novel when Molly's so confused you're so confused. I don't know. I feel like it adds to the chaos that Molly's feeling as well. With this novel, have to lean into the confusion and kind of the disillusionment and just mm-hmm. embody it in the same way that the character does. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that question because I, I was thinking about that a lot when yeah. I was reading. So, yeah. well, I think it's time for our standby questions. These will be the same every single time yes that we upload so every other week these standby questions will be exactly the same yep first one is who do you think murdered molly based on entirely on what you know at this point in the book so not a whole lot (laughs) i don't have a guess i none I, right now, I'm just going to maintain my position of, I think he was murdered precisely for the pictures, and I think there was maybe a specific instance that led to his murder. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think it was like, oh, he took the pictures, we killed him. No. I think that he got himself into a situation, probably in Jaffna, where he made someone really angry. I just don't know who it is. Do Do you have any ideas? I became really suspicious of Kajaraha. 
Oh, yeah. Especially after Molly was like, this dude's lying about something. That was really, I was like, huh. But then Elsa came down and was like, I'll help you find these pictures. So, but she might also be, like, covering up what he did. It's hard because, like, weirdly we trust Molly, but we don't know if we should. Yeah, and he doesn't have all of the information about what he was doing those last couple days. He doesn't remember anything. So it's hard for us because yeah. we're going off of the little information he knows as well. Yeah. And it's like he can't guess at this point in time who killed him, so how should we be able to? <laughs> very valid, very valid point. Um, okay, and then our next one is what was a quote or a moment that really stuck with you that you want to bring to our attention? I actually chose a quote because I felt like this quote spoke to pretty much the entire scope of the narrative of the novel Mm. so far. On page six, there's a quote that reads, the heave of humanity is never picturesque. The heave throngs towards you. And I think it was, I think the, the diction in that is really instrumental to how much it stood out to me. I mean, the heave of humanity is never picturesque. It throngs towards you. Like, it's just Mm -hmm. so heavy and, like, elongated. And I think that it speaks to, I think it's commentary on the Civil War. Like, Mm -hmm. that is the heave of humanity, and it's just coming at him. It's coming at him in his vocation. It's coming at him in his death, in his life, in his family life. I mean, it's completely all-consuming so I think that that quote just really stood out to me as beautiful intricate description of how heavy humanity is for this character right Mm. now that's a good one that's a really good one thank you I also brought in a quote and I read this and I was like wow that I never thought of that. And it says, Evil is not what we should fear. Creatures with power acting in their own interest. That is what should make us shudder. And I never thought of, like, evil not being the thing that we should fight against. But individuals who have power in society and in other people's life not using it for the betterment of other people but for their own personal gain as something as that being the true evil honestly that's a really interesting concept like I really I didn't initially notice that quote in this chapter or this book as Mm -hmm. he calls them but that's pretty profound and it kind of begs the question like does evil even exist without humans like human intervention like can evil exist on its own or is it our corruption of a good thing that makes Mm. things evil yeah that's a big question i mean it's a big question (laughs) it's a big question that's so good though hey guys that's the end of our first episode Brent how are you feeling I I feel great I mean I I'm really excited to get more into this book like I feel like this is a perfect teaser to lead into it and I'm just really excited for 
you guys to listen to this and to kind of see what we're thinking and to disagree with us. Please disagree with us. Please disagree with us. <laughs> this is not supposed to be a one-sided moment. No, we hear your guys' theories as well as we go on. So please tell them to us. We would love to hear them. We are not experts on this book. Like we said, this is our first read, hopefully along with yours. Or maybe you're not reading and you're just getting your information on the book from us. Yeah, that's purely acceptable too yeah but just keep in mind that we are this is our first read we're imperfect and we are going through this as flawed girls that love literature yeah flawed girls who love literature yes that should be the name of our podcast maybe flawed women (laughs) okay well until next time you guys oh wait next time we are reading the second moon so the second yes. chunk, the second chapter. The second chapter, which is pages 87 to page 170. Yeah. So if you're going to read along with us, those are our next section. And hope to see you next time. We are so excited. So excited. Well, have a great night and a great day yeah. and a great whatever moment you're in. Yeah. And we'll see you. See you next time.